This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Welcome back, everyone. This is a special episode. We are recording from Rush today, except I brought my Northwestern colleagues over here to Rush for an exciting new thing we're going to do. Nick and Megan and Dr. Abrams are going to present a case to the Northwestern team who will be the discussants today. So I'll let everyone introduce themselves and fill you in on what they've been up to since you heard them last. This is Nick again. Just enjoying my fourth year at, at Rush, fourth year in med school. Just applying to internal medicine, so excited about that. And yeah, fourth year's been great. I'm really enjoying getting to pick my own electives and getting some more time off, so really enjoyed it. But yeah, very excited for this case. Megan? Hey everyone, Megan. I am also enjoying fourth year. Just got started with interviews not too long ago, which is exciting that I've finally reached this point. I remember starting first year and thinking how old all the fourth year med students look at, so it's very weird to now be that person. But yeah, everything's great. I'm happy to be back here for another episode and a very special one. That's awesome. Well, it is wonderful to be here. This is Dan. You know, it's so funny being on the other side of the table. I'm here with my very good friend, former <laughs> co-host, now teammate in this whole process, Lauren Smith. What's up, Lauren? Oh, hey, Dan. How's it going? <laughs> Lauren, you know, we've been talking about something right over, but it is so weird being on the other side of the table, but we are so excited to be doing this here. Yeah, seriously. Thank you so much for having yeah. us. We're so excited to finally meet you all in person yeah. and really get this party going. Yeah, yeah. So tell us more about you guys. So, you know, the M4 life has really taken over my entire personality. I, I used to have dreams, now I just sleep, and I like, no, it's great. I can't imagine a better, no. So, you know, I feel like with the free time, I, I just started, got back into running. So the hot chocolate 15K just happened. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, go uh, do So, you know, it's been nice to just kind of kick back, experience Chicago for all of its seasons, including as winter slowly falls in on us. Yeah, same here. Interview season is is starting, which is super exciting, echoing your sentiment, Megan. It's really strange to be actually a fourth year and going through this process, but super exciting as well. I've also been spending a lot of time on Netflix, which has been great. <laughs> I finished Love is Blind, would highly recommend. And lots of brunch spots to go to. Mm. So fourth year is great. It's good to have Dr. Abrams back on my side over here. What's new with you? Not so much. I, by the way, you guys are talking about running. We have two very esteemed runners. Across, one very esteemed runner. No, we have two esteemed runners across the way here. I, the only thing I want to say is that this is a, this is a fresh case. This case, is, is this case was from a couple of weeks ago when I was on service. And I, I've got to say, after five COVID vaccines, I finally had COVID, <laughs> which was not so bad, I'll say that. But this was the last case I saw before I had to take my COVID vacation from oh, service. Man. There you go. Oh, boy. <laughs> and then yeah, we have, we have a special, special guest. guest. It's more of a recruitment tactic on our part. But we have part of the case with Dr. Abrams on service. I had the pleasure of working with Dr. Abrams while he was on service and then his check-ins throughout the week, even when he was away. So pleasure being here and thank you for having me. Awesome. Happy to have you, Sarah. All right, so that sounds like a great time to move on to Aliphat <laughs> 1. You guys ready? Yeah, let's do okay. it. Let's do it. So Aliphat 1, we'll start with our 31-year-old female patient. She presented to the ER with a day of abdominal pain, some vomiting, some chest pain. She says her abdominal pain is intermittent, localizes to her epigastrium with some radiation to the right upper quadrant. She's also saying she has this chest pain that she describes as substernal, 
burning and worse when she swallows or eats. She's maybe endorsing some chills, but she hasn't taken her temperature or measured a fever at home, no cough or urinary symptoms. And also notably, she reports about 30 pounds of unintentional weight loss over the past year. So we like to start out with our first output, obviously broad and and just kind of like to get a sense of, of anything here that sticks out to you or how would you approach something like this? But yeah, we have a 31 year old female. You know, just, just kind of like taking like an initial look at this. It's very interesting. We're seeing a one day history of, of this acute abdominal pain, but I'm also seeing a 30 pound weight loss over an entire year. So when I see this, I'm thinking something acute is happening, but looks like acute on chronic. So whatever is going on, clearly it looks like this has been happening for a while, but something may have triggered this to all of a sudden be an exacerbation. We're seeing this abdominal pain going up to the right of a quadrant. We're seeing this new onset chest pain. Yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think, Lauren? Yeah, I mean, on first glance, this sounds kind of like GI mm. related. We've got abdominal pain, of course, epigastrum radiating to the right upper quadrant, chest pain being substernal and burning and particularly worse with swallowing and eating makes me think more of a like esophageal process or like gastric issue potentially and of course you know it's it's a little bit odd i would say for such a young patient 31 to be having you know 30 pounds of unintentional right. weight loss so that makes me concerned about malignancy as well yeah i mean especially because it's like radiating it's like in the epigastric radiating to the right upper quadrant I assume at some point we're going to get some imaging uh, of, you know, of the abdomen <laughs> just to see what's going on. But you know, I totally agree with you. What's going on with overall the patient's eating history, dietary history, what's been going on? And also, how has the patient's bowel movements been recently? Mm -hmm. Many changes to that. Um, endorses chill, so that's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I, I assume we'll get some vital signs soon just to take a look at how she's doing. Definitely very broad, so I'm very excited to see you know, uh, what, where we can go from here. I'm worried about her gallbladder. Yeah, 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 that radiation of the medical quadrant. Pretty classic in chills. Mm -hmm. Also wondering why, you know, she's had these symptoms. It sounds like this weight loss over the past year, but now really acute kind of tempo of the abdominal pain and other issues. So curious about, you know, chronic versus acute. Yeah, I think you guys bring up some really good points. I feel like this is a very classic patient that shows up to the emergency room and then it all kind of comes down to, well, what do you want to work her up for? So if you guys are the EM doctors, where are you ordering? Well, <laughs> when, you know, whenever I hear abdominal pain, I always am like, oh, let's let's take a look at let's let me let me first do a physical exam and then let's also try to get some kind of an imaging. You know, I think classically when I hear right upper quadrant, I think more ultrasound. But when I think of other quadrants, I think of oh, let's try to get a CT, A, a and P. I, I, in an ideal world, I'd love to get all three. Like let's do a physical, let's get both. But I think if I had to pick, I I try to go for a CT just because it looks like it's more in the epigastrium. I'm wondering, especially with this potential malignancy, like we're talking about, if we can visualize something there. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think I agree with you. I definitely would want to get some labs, mm -hmm. get a CBC, MP. I would definitely want to check mm -hmm. liver enzymes. And yeah, it's interesting thinking about ultrasound versus CT for this patient because, you know, ultrasound sometimes actually takes longer to get than mm -hmm. CT. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also considering this patient has this unintentional weight loss, you know, I'm thinking maybe T would be more helpful because we'd get more information about not just the right upper quadrant. So I'd probably also go for a CT in this patient. Also, given that she's having pain with swallowing, would probably consider getting GI on board, yeah. thinking about if we want to do a scope. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, something else that I also was just thinking about, if this has been going on over the past year, I know we don't have a ton of like past medical history, but I'd also want to ask, has a similar episode ever happened previously? And if so, has the patient worked up just so that we can have like a jumping off point? Or is this truly the first ever presentation of this abdominal pain vomiting? But yeah, kind of initial thoughts. Any any other labs that you're thinking of other than Mm. like a CBC, CMP? Well, I mean, especially with the epigastric, I feel like it'd be nice to get like a light pace amylase. Well, let's, yeah. let's get some LFTs. Let's, let's check Alkfoss Billy, just kind of classic, just starting off broad and then yeah. based on what that comes on as, let's kind of go from there. Yeah, definitely. I think you guys are totally on point with everything you want to order. This individual hadn't really been to the hospital before. There weren't any records on her, nothing on care everywhere. So I agree with you. It's always nice to like look back and see kind of what we had before. But mm-hmm. in this case, we did not have much. So we'll move on to the next aliquot. We have her exam here. Vitals are pretty unremarkable. She's a little tachycardic at 120, but a febrile blood pressure 109 over 88. Satting well on room air. On exam, mucous membranes are a little dry, and then her belly is soft, non-distended, a little bit of tenderness in the right upper quadrant, but no rebound. Anything with that exam, vitals? I know I didn't give you too much here, so. Yeah. I mean, with that, sounds like maybe sinus tech with heart rate of 120. Mucous membranes are dry, but this patient's been vomiting. I guess I'd want to know a little bit more about the vomiting, if it's bilious or bloody. We didn't really talk about that too much yet. So I think that would also be helpful to estimate, you know, it sounds like this patient's just dehydrated and that could be contributing to her tachycardia. And then the right upper quadrant tenderness is kind of consistent, but no rebound. So that's reassuring. Yeah. You know, every time I get an abdominal physical exam, I feel like I'm just so used to looking at rebound tender to see like, is there peritonitis? Like, do we got to like act the, you know, bump this up, but you know, I'm glad to see no rebound. I totally agree with you, Lauren. The tachycardia is slightly dry. This kind of seems like maybe the patient's just a little hypovolemic. Mm-hmm. When I see the mild, mild right upper quadrant tenderness to palpation, that could be a lot of things, mm-hmm. but I, I think nothing is screaming out at me saying, okay, this is something that's acute, acute rupture, for example. I think this may be a good point to maybe get some imaging. Yeah, I, I'm wondering if we were able to get like a Murphy sign. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah. But hey, you know what, why not? Let's let's see what else what else comes up. Yeah, I agree. I think still keeping it pretty broad with the exam. Yeah. Can't really kind of narrow it down anywhere, but we got some labs next, which I think will Very help you guys a little bit. Yeah. On to the labs. Mm. CBC, we have a white blood cell count of <laughs> oh. 13.8. All right. Hemoglobin, 9.8. MCV, elevated at 121. And platelets, 402. Her CMP showed a normal sodium at 140, normal potassium of 4.4 chloride 100, bicarb notably low at 9, and iron gap elevated at 31, BUN of 8, creatinine of 0.84, and a glucose of 90, albumin 2.7, the calcium is 9.5, total bilirubin 3, alkafos 117, and AST and ALT are 263 and 108 respectively. Her lipase was within normal limits at 14. A VBG showed a pH of 7.26 with a PCO2 of 28 a bicarb of 12, and a lactic acid of 13.1. Her urinalysis was negative, chest x-ray unremarkable, and EKG showed sinus tack. High sensitivity troponin was negative. So clearly there's lots, <laughs> lots of abnormalities here on the lab panel. I know some of them stood out to me, a lot of them, but yeah, did, did anything stand out more than the others? Or did, did, And Kevin looks like you, you want to say something too. Having done a few of these now, I'd like to look back and do a study on aliquots. I think aliquot 2 is kind of bland, and I think that's a sign that something juicy is coming. <laughs> and I think we got something juicy here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. 
so, stands out to you. All right, you know what? They, you know, this is so interesting. That I don't even know where to start. Well, let's start from the top. So white blood cell count, 13.8. That is elevated. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, we have an elevated white blood cell count, but the patient is afebrile. Now, I, I still am thinking, okay, could this be in the setting of some kind of a malignancy? Is there an infection? I, I make sure well, I wanna have both things on the table. Patient is anemic, a macrocytic anemia. I, I, I know we don't have like a B12 or a folate, but you know, just other things. I'm thinking of, is there a component of malnutrition that's going on? Is that why, you know? Especially with her albumin of 2.7. Right, right, yeah. And of course, we've got this anion gap of 31 with a lat, I think there's a elevated, yeah, a lactic acid of 13.1. That's not good. That's so. not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we also have elevated liver enzymes, mm -hmm. AST greater than ALT. The classic two to one ratio. That two to one, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that there's a lot of reasons why someone could have elevated liver enzymes, but definitely puts like hepatitis, acute hepatitis right. on, the, on the differential. Totally. You know, I think, especially when I see AST-ALT with that kind of a ratio, I'm thinking, especially in the setting of alcohol use, I'm, I'm just wondering if, if there has been any alcohol use. I know, you know, in the previous alcohol, there was a mention of when the patient would consume something, there'd be like a burning sensation in the chest. And I know with prolonged consumption, there can be development of certain uh, carcinomas, and that can mm -hmm. present some, just, just things that I'm thinking out loud. Yeah, I think that's great, Dan. And especially, too, if this patient doesn't really have prior medical history, these mm -hmm. labs are pretty remarkable right, for... Right for someone who was previously healthy. Totally. Also, I could be wrong, but that T-billy of three, that's elevated, isn't it? Yeah. So, so gallbladder, liver, right upper quadrant is definitely of interest here. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious if we can get a, like a, a direct versus an indirect billy, just to kind mm -hmm. of tease that apart a little bit more. Yeah. Lipase is, that's normal, right? Yeah, 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 so yeah. Maybe pancreatitis may be a little bit lower. Yeah, less concerning. Mm -hmm. We have um, a gas, why don't you guys interpret the gas? <laughs> VBG instead mm -hmm. of an ABG, so. A little, a little bit of a twist, but still, we have a pH of 7.26, which of course is still lower, so suggesting of an acid acidosis. We have a bicarb that is low of 12, and PCO2 of 28. So you know, I'm, when I'm looking at this, I'm seeing a low bicarb, low pH. I'm thinking more metabolic acidosis. PCO2 of 28. I. It seems like there's the patient is trying to compensate for respiratory, but I don't think it's enough. So I'd say metabolic acidosis with like, incomplete respiratory compensation. Mm -hmm. And anion gap, yeah. metabolic acidosis too. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, right, right, yeah. Uh, one good, one really good thing is EKG, sinus tac, and negative tropes. So at least you know we can ACS is not you know yeah. screaming. Yeah, like early on we had that complaint of chest pain, but I think you guys consciously but also subconsciously applied some pretest probability to thirty one year old patient. No known past medical history. The likelihood of her having ACS was very low. Mm -hmm. This is a nice, like, confirmatory rule out at this point. Yeah. Lauren had also mentioned the, the type of chest pain and yeah. kind of describing things that would more, more localize it to esophageal. So, yeah, just curious. I know you guys have kind of touched on this, but if we were to, like, have any general guesses on whether this could be, like, an infectious process or not, mm -hmm. just from what we have now, hard question to answer. But are there things that would point you in the direction of, yes, this is versus, no, this isn't? Or is it just kind of something that we just don't know yet? I mean, obviously, we'll have more diagnostic studies, so there is no right answer, but just curious. Yeah, I think at this point, I don't think I have enough information either way to say infectious versus right. not. I'm definitely concerned about like hepatitis picture for this patient, especially if there's like some autoimmune stuff, if she's in her 30s. but. I think the leukocytosis and platelets are on the higher end as well. It, it just, 
seems like an inflammatory state, yeah. not necessarily infectious, yeah. but maybe imaging would be something that would point us yeah. one way or the other. I, I totally agree. You know, I, I think especially at this point, I don't think infection is what has been driving this for a year, I think, at this point. Perhaps it is an overlying component, but I don't have enough to completely rule it out. But I, I think there's, if it is a component, there's something else as well going on mm-hmm. that I think we're still kind of trying to like, figure out. Yeah. One of the things I think about a lot is signal of noise. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's noise and noise, and sometimes it's <laughs> signal and signal. Yeah. So you can have some big signals and little yeah. signals and yeah. things like that. Yeah. And I just was wondering if you guys, you know, if, as you look at this stuff, if you say, what do I really think the signal coming out of these labs is? I mean, I would say, from my perspective, these labs are surprising given that the patient's afebrile. So, yeah. but I mean, you see a lactate of 13.1 and it's like, is this sepsis? But, you know, patient doesn't really meet SIRS criteria or anything like that, but definitely concerned about the leukocytosis, the anion gap, metabolic acidosis, and the, yeah, and the elevated lactate. That seems to be like the signal to me. Yeah, I was gonna ask, how do you guys kind of reconcile with a lactic acid of 13.1? I remember I used to work in the ED and one of the doctors kind of is like, you know, an oversimplification told me that like for every like one of the lactate, that basically is like the percent that the patient's gonna die. So like a lactate of two is like a 20% chance they're gonna die. So this will give her a 130% chance of dying. <laughs> but she otherwise looks pretty good vitals wise. So I guess I'm just wondering what you're thinking and how you kind of like put those two pieces of information together. Yeah, that's not good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I'm concerned about this patient, yeah. I would say. Yeah. I don't, you know, she didn't have a fever. I'm just wondering if she took something, like did she take ibuprofen or Tylenol? Like, is it? masked right now, which would be yeah. helpful, but... Right. I, I, I agree. I think the white blood cell count, I, I think at this point it is a signal. I also think that the lactic acidosis potentially suggests this patient may not be like at the... may not be uvolemic, mm-hmm. so... Yeah, and just kind of thinking about like shock and, and things like that, I mean... AST is the first like liver enzyme to elevate in liver injury, so it could just be not necessarily like a liver process, but just a, a signal of badness, if you will. <laughs> Does her blood pressure kind of argue against that? Yeah, it, I mean, her blood pressure, especially with the her mucous membranes being dry, dry it doesn't really fit. Gets to go off. To go off signal versus noise too. I guess when I was going through this, trying to like not skip to the end. Mm-hmm. Also, another thing that stood out to me was MCV, just because mm-hmm. like I feel like all this could happen very acutely. And like Dan, you were saying, like this could be an acute and chronic process. And I just feel like that's something that maybe like doesn't happen overnight. Right, right. Um, and so that kind of doubles down on what you were saying is like, if this person's been complaining of weight loss for a year, we also have lab lab suggestion that she's not just like perfectly healthy at her baseline. There's something else here. So that, that stood out to me too. And so I tried to like think of things that would yeah. go in line with that. But yeah, interesting. No, I'm trying to think of like what the problems are that she has and kind yep. of like work through them in my brain because I feel like there's a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. And we always want to like link everything together. Right. right. And sometimes it's just, it's separate separate issues. Right. I know I still definitely struggle with that. The Occam's razor. Yeah. The yeah. Problem. yeah. <laughs> I try to, you know, I try to be like Dr. House and just have, you know, everything right. comes together and yeah. just yeah. never, never works. Totally. Um, Megan, you want to 
move on? Yes. All right. So we got some imaging coming up next. Ultrasound of the abdomen showed a distended gallbladder with tumefactive sludge. No specific findings to suggest acute cholecystitis. Echogenic hepatic parenchyma, which can be seen with hepatocellular disease. Most commonly hepatic steatosis. Gallbladder sludge, but no pericholecystic fluid or visible gallstones. No common bile duct dilatation. On MRCP, moderately contracted gallbladder and motion artifact limits assessment of the gallbladder. There's minimal layering, gallbladder, gallbladder sludge, otherwise unremarkable given limitations of the exam. And so at this point, general surgery was called just because there was kind of this question about whether or not this is like an acute cholecystitis. I think that we kind of learned that like it's very easy to just like work up gallbladder pathology, but then there's actually a lot of gray area. And so yeah, general surgery, their recommendations were to admit to medicine, IV antibiotics, HIDA scan, and GI console. So yeah, given all of this, what are you thinking? Is this enough to kind of like rule out gallbladder pathology? What do you think you'd want to give antibiotics wise? Do you think they're correct in prescribing antibiotics? Well, your guys' thought process at this point. Are you satisfied with it? <laughs> does this answer does this, any questions this, for you? Or does this frustrate you? <laughs> Admit to medicine. Yeah. <laughs> what are you thinking, Dan? You know, so this ultrasound is showing a distended gallbladder with tumefactive sludge. So I guess I'm thinking, why aren't we seeing appropriate contraction of the gallbladder that, to like facilitate movement of this sludge? But I'm also seeing no common bile dilation. There's no such sign of stones or any kind of cholelithiasis that may cause like fluid around the gallbladder. I I know something that kind of fits is like acalculus cholecystitis, but mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure how to interpret, especially these MRCP findings that show minimal layering. Like yeah. how, how does that impact? Yeah. I mean, sludge just by itself doesn't seem that, you know, profound. There's no common bile duct dilation, so that there's not a clear mass or something mm -hmm. causing that, which is, you know, doesn't necessarily rule out malignancy, right. but would be, you know, is good for this patient. The echogenic hepatic parenchyma, I think, is kind of non-specific and not, not super helpful. So I don't make too much of that at the moment. And yeah, of course, it's motion artifact limits assessment, so that makes it hard. Clinical <laughs> <laughs> correlation up. Yeah. It's so like, real world example right there. Yes. But yeah, minimal layering, but I don't really know the significance of that, like right. the distended right. gallbladder. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of attention has been focused on the gallbladder and the liver. Mm -hmm. I think we're searching for something at this point that's just not there. Possible. But it's possible. It's <laughs> yeah. possible. You know, now that you mentioned it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yeah. I mean, so just thinking back to this patient's initial presentation, too, there's a lot of other stuff going on, right? This patient is vomiting. They're having pain with swallowing. That doesn't totally fit with a gallbladder pathology. So, you know, maybe we're zooming in too much into right. the gallbladder. And yeah. I think GI consult and... Maybe scope would be helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think with this case, it's e it's easy to zoom in on the gallbladder because, yeah. I mean, the patient was subjectively complaining of right upper quadrant pain. We had labs that may be localized there. So I guess first step, yeah, I, I'm not surprised that these tests were ordered, but it was a little bit unsatisfying here. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me, what what it's saying, kind of, I think you guys, are, what you're saying is reflective of that. Yeah, I think this is a great example of just how challenging it can be to work up abdominal pain and how few times you like actually get answers for what's causing it. Even when you're like in the hospital and you're getting all the tests, we're like, oh, we'll get an MRCP. That'll give us our answer. And right. then it's still like, 
you know, exam is limited. But yeah, something I did learn is that sludge actually can cause pain. So you can get like little stones within the sludge that make it really hard to see. So you can get some colicky type abdominal pain. So it'd be hard to kind of attribute everything that's going on to this gallbladder sludge. But sometimes it's always nice to think maybe you have like an answer to at least part of it. So mm -hmm. yeah. it could explain her pain. What do you think about the liver? I feel like for a patient that, you know, hasn't been in before, doesn't really go to doctors often. Sometimes you have to like use the lab and imaging findings to kind of backtrack and figure out what their medical history is. So what do you think about the hepatic steatosis? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely concerned about her liver. I think that the imaging finding in and of itself is not necessarily specific, but I think it would warrant certainly more of a social history and figure out, does this patient drink alcohol? Right, what's, right. what's their history? Is there any like, you know, thinking about autoimmune hepatitis, is there any history of autoimmune disease in the family? Yeah. yeah. I'm also wondering maybe if we, on physical exam, we take a look at the size of the liver, like mm -hmm. is, is there any compression of, of surrounding structures that maybe contribute to irritation? This, this hepatic steatosis, I, this looks like a chronic issue. So, you know, also going off with you, so Lauren, what has been the patient's kind of base, like how has the patient been prior to the year? What was the patient's diet like intake? How has the patient's normal like activities of daily living been like? Because I imagine even this, it probably started more than a few months ago. It's probably yeah. a, a long-term process. I, I, do, I will give you guys one additional piece of history that you guys should have given them. Given them and that is, <laughs> she was in no way cachectic. Mm. Okay. okay, so mm -hmm. she was, Remember her weight? I think she weighed. I'm just gonna ask. Okay. I think she weighed about one twenty-six. I yeah, twenty-six. Okay, twenty-six. So okay. she was. She was not. She's well. Okay. 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 Yeah. You said this twenty-six. Sounds. Sounds. I think I remember. Megan remembers it that way. Then that. Okay. But also, yeah. Also, not super high to suggest a cause of hepatic steatosis that would be in line with someone who is like morbidly obese. And yeah, hepatic steatosis also like you guys are saying, definitely not something that we're like acutely worried about causing right. a presentation, but not something to be ignored. Like right. this can progress to cirrhosis. We have really good treatments now for what, and we know that weight loss is, is associated with decreasing evidence of hepatic steatosis. Right. So right. that's also something to keep in mind. Yeah. And yeah, so like you said, the chronicity of, of hepatic steatosis. Mm -hmm. I guess, yeah, that's the biggest thing right now that I'm thinking about is what is acute and what is chronic because this patient I mean, I don't think the, the lactic acidosis is going to be a chronic thing, but <laughs> certainly, you know, the, the macrocytic anemia may be chronic. So it's just, yeah, it's hard to hard to know without, you know, any records too. Yeah. Any further tests that you guys want to get? So what the CT? You know, I, you know me. I'd love, <laughs> I'd love to get a CT if we can. Just to take a look at the rest of the abdomen. And what do you think? It sounds like they're kind of treating her for a sepsis picture with these IV antibiotics. How do you guys feel about them? I, I, yeah, I, I don't really feel too strongly one way or the other. I mean, there is an elevated wet blood cell coming. I cannot disagree with that. I personally don't really feel bad about starting it, especially if we mm -hmm. start kind of broad. I, obviously, I'm not throwing in like a very high-powered, not throwing in Meropenem. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, think, I think it's okay to start broad and kind of see where things go. Yeah, I mean... I guess my thought is, I know this patient's not febrile, but with with a lactic acid of 13 and a white count, I think it makes sense to start something initially and then kind of maybe peel back yeah. as we get more information. Uh, also, I mean, I, I don't know if this was touched on, but before we start the IV antibiotics, maybe we can also get like cultures, like mm -hmm. blood cultures, mm -hmm. urine culture, just so we have that before we, you know. Yes, wait. very good point. Uh, ID would be very happy with you for <laughs> drawing cultures before giving antibiotics.
Okay, good. So we have a couple more tests. All right. So for so we have the, the HIDA scan, which was unfortunately inconclusive. <laughs> there was non-visualization of the gallbladder during initial 60 minutes of imaging, which is considered abnormal. Additional imaging needed for further evaluation, but the patient <laughs> refused. The iron itself was within normal limits, or just a little, a little elevated, excuse me, at 193 with upper limit of normal at 170. Ferritin is markedly elevated at 1,196. Total iron binding capacity and percent saturation unable to calculate due to result outside of reportable range. The folate was undetectable and the B12 was 316, which is slightly on the lower range of normal. Haptoglobin 53, which was normal. LDH elevated at 508. Peripheral smear with schistocytes, normal morphology. Reticulocyte count 0.69%. There was a central hypothyroidism with TSH of 0.223 and a T4 of less than 0.6. And then hepatitis panel and HIV are negative. Mm. So new findings here. Wow. Yeah, so <laughs> what do you guys think? You know, you guys are giving us some very, very interesting data here. I'm, I'm just gonna, I'll just start somewhere and we can just yeah, go bounce it. off ideas. So, the first thing that kind of sticks out to me is this patient has this anemia, this long-term anemia, but normally I would expect the reticulous account to be a bit higher if a patient did have anemia because the body's trying to increase those numbers. This, that's a normal reticulous account, which I feel like I would not normally expect. So I'm a little concerned why it's not elevated. Also, the T, the, it looks like the patient's thyroid levels are low, but the TSH is also low, which suggests, again, the central hypothyroidism. So I'm wondering what, like centrally what, there's a component to this. Also, of course, folate undetectable. Maybe that's also contributing to the macrocytic anemia. I'm also thinking, like, the HIDA scan. Why? I'm trying to think of why you would not see the gallbladder. I don't know if there's, like, if that would happen from hepatomegaly yeah, so, or... Yeah. Yeah. So apparently it can be A, because there's, like, some sort of gallbladder pathology or the gallbladder is just contracted and so it kind of okay. takes longer for... Which makes sense because yeah. they said it was contracted. So, no one really knows exactly what's going on. Think about like how how like a HIDA scan works. So it's like functional. So you'll inject like a radionucleotide that will go into the liver, and it will basically bind to all the bile that's produced. This may be a rough explanation, but then we can track that that bile in the biliary system, and so normally it's supposed to go eventually, you know, down the down the ducts. Some of it goes into the gallbladder. None of it goes into the gallbladder. Sometimes that can tell us that there's an obstruction of like the cystic duct leading out of the gallbladder. But Nick just finished GI. So. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? So we've huh. got a big question mark then yes. on the gallbladder. Just a further example of how Love sometimes that. more tests still can't get right, the answer. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. What, guess, do, what do you think about all these irons? <laughs> yeah. So I was going to say, I think, I mean, ferritin is also an acute phase reactant. So that I. You know, I think that's probably why it's elevated. So, I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. So, the TAB, I, I've never seen a TABC <laughs> because it's outside of the reportable range. Yeah. So, I don't know. What, what, what are your thoughts? What are you, what are you leaning towards? I know, I'm trying to remember how they're calculated. <laughs> yeah. Like, if that would be because of the, like, the ferritin or if it would be separate. I think when I'm, my first thought is if the ferritin is this high, this, I think there's a quite inflammation that's happening that's potentially leading to this very, very elevated ferritin. Percent saturation, it's outside of the reported range. Is I'm thinking it's probably low? low. Yeah, because they're opposite, low, right? right? Ferritin right. and... Yeah. 
So is this like a like anemia of chronic disease? Is this? I'm not sure. Or maybe acute on chronic. Right. right. <laughs> With this acute phase. Yeah. Right. I, I, we may not be able to pinpoint a diagnosis out of this, but yeah. really something something chronic is going on. Yeah. 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 Interesting folate is undetectable. I've never seen an undetectable folate before, but B12 is normal. Interesting. Yeah. LDH, I guess with LDH being elevated, I don't know, I'm I'm more concerned about malignancy. Right, right, yeah. In this patient. Yeah. yeah. Especially like hepatitis and HIV is negative. Mm. I don't know. Right, right. I, I I think especially like getting into like a social history because I know one of the most common forms of folate is especially through like leafy greens and like I'm just. I just want to make sure I'm getting a full picture on the dietary history and like mm-hmm. what else could be kind of contributing to an undetectable folate level. That that is exactly the next question I was going to have is like, yeah, what do you want? What do you want to know from the patient? I mean, yeah. like things that would cause a low folate level. We usually like to think of the diet. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so yeah, that's something that definitely we would want to know more from the patient. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess that generally, like you guys are saying, this kind of screams more chronic process again it's kind of been like a theme that we've that we've been going on so yeah just a, a fun fact about the iron studies i was also curious about how exactly these were calculated so yeah basically the tibc and the uibc and you can now apparently measure directly like the transferrin level so they're all looking at the amount of iron so basically it like takes your blood and then adds more iron to it and sees how much more can be bound so if it's high that means that there's like iron deficiency because you're adding more iron and your body can like take up a lot more iron versus if it's low that means that there's already a lot of iron in there and so it can't take more. So yeah, in this case, I think we were thinking that the percent saturation was high just based on the iron being high and the ferritin being high and then the TIBC being very low. I'm not sure if you had anything to add with that, Dr. Abrams. I think you guys are doing great. Okay, so yeah, I feel like this might be a helpful time to kind of go back and just like maybe talk about the problem list because mm-hmm. there's a lot going on mm-hmm. and maybe related, maybe unrelated, it's hard to say for sure. Um, yeah. So what do you guys think so far? What progress, I guess, can we make on the problems that we have? Yeah. Let's see. Well, I think kind of the the initial presenting problem was this new onset abdominal pain mm-hmm. that started one day ago, yeah. along with the vomiting and some new onset chest pain that with some soreness and pain, especially on swallowing. And of course, there's this long-standing, year-long, thirty-pound weight loss that's mm-hmm. that's been going on. We're trying to figure out what might what that might be what that might be contributing towards. When we did some lab studies, we were seeing a pretty significant metabolic acidosis okay. with an elevated anion gap of I think it was thirty-one. Mm-hmm. On imaging, we're seeing signs of a moderately distended gallbladder, but kind of unclear what really is happening right upper quadrant. We're seeing some hepatic mm-hmm. steatosis, and you know, even here as well, we're seeing an elevated white blood cell count and labs that are suggestive of a chronic process with an unclear uniting diagnosis right now. What what are you thinking? Yeah, I think, yeah, I've got abdominal pain, macrocytic anemia, this lactic acidosis, hepatic steatosis, question mark on the gallbladder, hypothyroidism, which I'm like trying to think about how these, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe she just has thyroid disease that's undiagnosed. But again, this patient is very young in their 30s. This is also like prime time for autoimmune disease right. to yeah. to come up. But yeah, this LDH and ferritin. Right. Yeah. Yeah, some weird stuff going on. Yes. All right. So yeah, for the first problem, we have like this abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. Mm-hmm. 
you guys want to do anything more about it? You think it's been fully worked up? We also got a CT, which didn't show anything, just redemonstrated the hepatic steatosis. <laughs> <laughs> we do have that piece of information for you. <laughs> I know you were waiting for it. Oh, I still kind of want to scope her. I yeah. Upper, lower, both? Upper, unless she's having, you know, bright red blood per rectum, which isn't anything that we've gotten so far in the history. So um, she actually is. We didn't put that in yet. But yeah, okay. so yeah, this was kind of a, mm. a little side thing that was going on. It's been kind of like a chronic intermittent problem, just like a little bit of blood every once in a while when she wipes. Okay. Perrecta. Well, I mean, she has a pretty significant anemia for a 31-year-old woman. So I would probably do upper and lower because she <laughs> had pain with swallowing. Definitely want to ask more about that if she has like globus sensation, if she feels like food is getting stuck in her throat, how long exactly that's been going on for. I think I'm not clear on the time course of that particular issue, but certainly if she is also having bright red blood per rectum, I would want to do upper and lower totally. endoscopy. Yeah. And you know, like going off of all that, especially if the patient is continuing to have nausea, I just want to make sure that the patient's current nausea centers, like we're also like addressing that, right? Giving her appropriate anti-nausea meds, making sure like she feels comfortable sitting upright when she's eating to kind of minimize some of that burning sensation. So if she lies down, that's probably exacerbated. Making sure that, you know, when she's going to the bathroom, if, if she needs help, especially if, if it's painful, if there's blood that, you know, we are able to like take a look at it or make sure that, you know, things are going okay. But I definitely agree with everything Lauren that you're suggesting as well for further workout. All right, I agree with you guys. Let's see, next problem. So she has these kind of LFT derangements, the hyperbilly, the AST and ALT. We got a hepatitis panel that was negative. That included like EBV, CMV, HIV. Anything else you guys want to do to work that up? You want to chalk it up to something else? What do you think? <laughs> I'm thinking back. I know at Northwestern we have a whole panel that you can put in an epic. Yes, so really like, I want the hepatitis panel. Yeah. We have what here? Yeah, that was that one. I want that. <laughs> it was that. I, I think they check for like anti or what is it? An, an alpha one antitrypsin, which I mean we're not really getting any history of lung disease, but you know, yeah, that just could not have progressed yet. So would be something to check. And I think there's a bunch of other antibodies for like autoimmune hepatitis that I would want to check. Anti-smooth, uh, anti-smooth yeah. antibody yeah. for, for autoimmune Nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, so I, I would definitely want to check those. Also, I don't know if she, I'm thinking also about like a drug-induced yeah. liver injury check. I mean, it doesn't necessarily sound like acetaminophen toxicity, but we could always check a yeah. level. So I, yeah, I would want to know if she's what meds she's taking. We haven't really talked about her medication. Yeah, a lot of meds that can cause it. Yeah. I guess steroids would be the only other question of like, would we... Elevated white blood cell count. But she also, is this infection? Right. Is this not? So I would probably not, so not at the moment, right, but... Right, right, yeah. It's always a good thought. Go ahead. So, I mean, I don't think this is very pretty, but I'm wondering if we can get like a cortisol ACTH as well, if, if that might be helpful. Just, you know, it's something that I always think about when... We have this kind of a picture as well, just to you know, see what is the ACT is looking like. Yeah. Is there the point of pushing? I think like the image negative abdominal pain, you always right. think about like adrenal insufficiency mm -hmm. as a cause for it. Mm -hmm. That's a really good thought. Okay, this macrocytic anemia. Do you guys feel like you got an answer on that? I'd love to know her <laughs> her social history. At this point, I don't have an answer for anything, okay? I guess I'm also just thinking generally about like a malabsorptive process right. for her. Right which could also, you know, contribute. So I'd want to know her alcohol use history, okay. just general diet history, like Daniel, you mentioned earlier. 
Yeah, totally. It's like with this undetectable folate, is she not taking it in? Is she not absorbing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are always kind of the big questions to ask. All right, I think we can move on to the next one. Anything you want to add, Dr. Evans? No, I'm interested in what the next aliquot is. <laughs> Um, All right, Uh so evaluated by GI, recommended EGD colonoscopy, the tissue transglutaminase slash IgA, and then a hemochromatosis panel, because kind of based on those iron labs is more suggestive, more of like an iron overload picture. So we got an EGD and colonoscopy to show mild inflammatory changes, but no explanation for the patient's pain. A normal tissue transglutaminase with a normal IgA level, so you always want to check that to make sure they're not IgA deficient. And then also a hemochromatosis panel, which was negative. Interesting. (laughs) Is it another dead end? No. Every closed door is a- There you go. <laughs> what is this? I haven't heard this. Yeah, I just made it. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> I like it. It's a very optimistic. quote, but very optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad yeah, yeah. Dan likes his doors open. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Anyway, it's interesting. We were just talking about malabsorptive, and we were looking at a TTG IgA, which I, I assume they're looking into like celiac disease. Yes, exactly. And mm-hmm. if those are normal, suggesting that perhaps it this patient does not have celiac mm-hmm. The colonoscopy and EGD, great, great, great one. Like they, they really listen, listen to it, so totally. <laughs> it was all because he said that. Yeah. So we're going to do it. Lauren's like, I want it. Yeah. <laughs> Mild inflammatory changes, but it's no explanation for the patient's pain. So yeah, I don't really know what to take from mm-hmm. that. I'm not really seeing any, any signals. There's um, no comment either on like active bleeding right. or anything. So maybe it's like hemorrhoids or something and not actually. Totally. Internal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I remember reading, reading somewhere that most causes of like rectal bleeding in young people are like pretty benign, but obviously something important to get worked up to make sure that it isn't something scarier. Yeah. Well, before we go on to the next aliquot, I guess I want. I was I was wondering just about the lactic acidosis. So let's say like <laughs> oh, it's yeah. so severe, right? Yeah. You know, it's like this is this, the thing that's screaming is like it, as an acute process, but. Let's say, like, you know, we're treating her for an infection here, and, like, it's not really responding on antibiotics. So, like, we're not, we're, we're not getting better with, like, our antimicrobials, and, and, of course, we like to think about infection, but how does that change how we think about lactic acidosis? And I know that can be kind of tricky, so we can help lead you through it, because we talked about it before, but, like, like, building up lots of lactate, but not necessarily maybe because of an infection, does that, does that uh, drive thinking, and, or, or can you tie that into anything we've seen as well? You know, I think for me, I, I think it kind of further maybe lends itself to, we were talking about malignancy a little bit earlier on in our discussion. Like what, when, when I think of lactic acidosis, I think of a mismatch between oxygen supply and tissue demand. And you know, when I think of malignancy, I'm thinking of there are more cells that are being developed and so there's a greater demand, but uh, supply is the same or probably decreasing. Potentially that's contributing to this lactic acidosis picture. And like you're mentioning, if antimicrobials aren't affecting, aren't really doing anything, maybe something else entirely is going on that's driving these changes. Yeah, we've, we've talked, exactly, we, we've talked in the past about like the, we have like two general types we like to think about, type A, where we have like hypoperfusion, so like the tissues, the cells are not getting what they need, so we'll think of like septic shock or cardiogenic shock. Then type B would be like, we don't have any evidence of hypoperfusion, there's some, but the cells are just still not doing like their job, and so. Also, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it. You talking you know, we're talking about the Warburg phenomenon. I didn't say yeah. it. You yeah. said yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so that's just I guess something to think about. Something you you've been leading to. Is there anything in this case that would explain maybe a a problem at the at the cellular level as to like why lac- lactic acid is building up or any like. You haven't heard that word since. Oh. <laughs> I know. Like, yeah, I don't know. Are there any labs 
or like the LH hard was, question. Hard. Yeah. The, well, the alleviate was elevated, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that also led that like, perhaps there is increasing cell turnover. There's I don't know if that's where we're going with it. That cellular. I don't know, Lauren. Is there any other lab that you can think mm-hmm. of? That may have? I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking like tumor lysis syndrome is a thing that exists. Yeah, we know, didn't have a really elevated potassium. Right. We could check a uric acid, but I don't know that that's what's going on here. But it just so over the next couple of days, she's admitted for a couple of days. Her abdominal pain starts to get better. She's eating. She's drinking. She's doing okay. She got antibiotics. She got fluids. All around, she's doing a little bit better. But she just has this persistent lactic acidosis. So it's real life. What are you guys doing? The answer could be Google. That's a great answer. But what are you thinking? What are her other labs looking like at that point? Like, are they her still? Her LFTs are downtrending. Okay. Her Billy normalized. I'll give you two other labs, just so you know that these guys left out early. And one was her CRP was less than five. Mm-hmm. And a SED rate was, I think, five. Yeah, they're both. Mm-hmm. Very low. Maybe less inflammatory. Inflammatory? <laughs> And the CT just showed that. <laughs> well, we don't have a CT, right? She didn't want more imaging. No, she got the CT. Oh, she, she did? did like some okay. special imaging for the high scan. Oh, got she it. Didn't want. Okay. But the CT was, it was open. What are you Googling? <laughs> Do that every yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I'm thinking persistent lactic acidosis yeah. in the absence of other symptoms. Yeah. 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 Help. Oh. <laughs> it's my morning ritual. Type help to my computer. Right. So I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think of like what, what our problem list would be now at this point for this patient. So persistent lactic acidosis, but now she's not really having abdominal pain. Colonoscopy and EGD were not very helpful. But I guess, yeah, I'm thinking more of an autoimmune, potentially, but I don't I would be searching differential for type B lactic acidosis. All right, so we got one more L clot for you. And I feel like when you hit dead ends, you always just want to go back and talk to the patient, talk to the family, yeah. see if there's anything that you're missing. So we got this last aliquot. When discussing with the patient's mother, she knows the patient's been drinking a significant amount of alcohol for the past six to 12 months, and they got a thiamine, which was very low at 32.3, lower limit of normal being 66.5. Yeah, so you know, when I, when I see an alcohol use for six to 12 months, and this kind of suggests a lot of the other things we're thinking of, especially when we saw the ASC to ALT. B1, about 32.3. I, I, I would want to, just thinking in terms of like immediate next steps, any, anytime I see a low thiamine level, I'm concerned about potential development of like Wernicke's mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. eventually, of course, cough syndrome. So making sure this patient has glucose, thiamine. I think that's all part of the banana bag. Yeah. So <laughs> just, just the classic, just make sure that the patient is getting those things. Mm-hmm. Because I think. The lactic acidosis could be contributing if, right, because if, the, if there's no glucose, you're just defaulting to anaerobic metabolism, and you're just you're just constantly generating lactic acid. So, like, no matter what, we can keep giving this patient fluids, but if there's no thiamine, I think we're not we're just not going to get anywhere with the glucose. So we got to get the thiamine back up. Yeah. What does thiamine do? <laughs> Kevin's being mean today. Uh, come on. Okay. That would be my Google question in the morning. Like, yeah. yeah. What's thiamine? I mean. What does thiamine again? I, I'm just remembering the video about like berry berry, wet and dry, and I'm trying to remember what the difference between the two is. I think one of the cool things is is to think about just what you're saying there, and that is, think of the things we know that are associated with thiamine deficiencies. 
So you guys have hit on two things already, right? But the, you've already mentioned two things that come quickly to your mind. What are, what are they? The, the very, 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 yeah. right? Yeah. And alcohol. And we're in a keys, right? Yeah. Doesn't look like she's having altered mental status or anything to suggest. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, or like nystagmus. Yeah. So I'm less concerned about that. Certainly concerned about the alcohol use, but I don't think that's necessarily. Yeah, I don't think it's for Right. Yeah. So what does this explain for you in terms of like the problem list? Like LFTs, anemia, abdominal pain. Mm -hmm. What do you feel like you can tie together? What do you feel like you still aren't sure about? What do you think was signal? What do you think was noise? Mm -hmm. I think a low B1 is a signal. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lock in on that. I, I yeah. think, I think a, a few at least of the patient symptoms may be tied to the low thiamine level, and I, I am expecting that upon repletion of the thiamine and glucose, we should see improvement, at least some improvement, particularly in the lactic acidosis. And I'm hoping that the abdominal pain might improve a little bit, just because there might be like improved tissue oxygenation and improved like glucose utilization. So what I'm hearing mm -hmm. from you, Dan, is it sounds like you want a TX to DX. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. That, yes. Uh, that, that's yeah. a great, that, that's what for the books, TX to DX. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of what we have on our problem list for this patient can be explained with this history of alcohol use and this low thiamine. I mean, the abdominal pain, macrocytic anemia, this hepatic steatosis that we saw on imaging. I guess something else I would be concerned about in this patient is like, we should probably be getting CWAS scores. Like we should, I would be concerned about withdrawal for this patient. Megan, you may know the answers. I've got one more lab that you didn't tell them either. And that was her INR. Yes. There was one INR that was elevated when okay. she first came in. It was about 1.37, I think. It did okay. normalize while she was admitted as well. Okay. So maybe maybe that's just at, at least earlier on the hepatic function may have been slightly impaired, but perhaps mm -hmm. perhaps things have improved. Okay. I, I also don't know if a, a low thiamine level would be the sole contributor to a I think it was a thirty thirty pound weight loss. Yeah. So yeah. I guess it's what's cause, what's effect. Right? right. Right. Yeah. I want I want to talk to this patient and see you know what's been going on the past six to twelve months. Yeah. Was there any trigger that right. you know started this increase in alcohol use? Is that related to the weight loss, you know, it's unintentional, but you know, right. what what has changed in the past year or so? Mm -hmm. Definitely, the the person, the social history. I think mm -hmm. just talking to, them, like like you said, talking to the patient will yeah. probably help us a ton, especially in this case. Yes. Yeah. Right. Anything else I forgot, Doctor? Yeah, you hit all the all the point on the points though. He's salty over here. No, <laughs> I apologize. If, if we were to piece together a diagnosis or like a unifying cause how would how would we how would we articulate this here kind of a, kind of a tough one for this one but i'm looking at my notes here and trying to cross things off yeah. my list you guys have already said it too yeah you guys kind of gone over you pretty much said yeah. it yeah yeah everything so yeah the way that they kind of tied this all together was that this is a b vitamin deficiency in the setting of excessive alcohol intake complicated by a type b lactic acidosis and macrocytic <laughs> so the patient was treated with IV thymine and with resolution her lactic acidosis also given folate and close out patient follow-up to monitor for improvement in her Wow. So. This is this is unique, at least for me. This is like I haven't actually seen this. Like, yeah, I can't say. I like <laughs> read about it, like, but I've never like seen this manifest clinically. Yeah. Sarah, you got to see it before I did. <laughs> wow. Yeah, interesting one to learn about for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This, this is, sorry, go ahead. 
I was just going to say there's it's just interesting to see how all the problems come together because there were so many lab abnormalities. So yeah, definitely good reminder of other reasons to have a lactic acidosis for me. Yes, right. that is a big one. So yeah, I think not all, not all lactic acidosis means infection. Um, so definitely something to consider, but also important to not just treat every patient that comes with a lactate of 13 for sepsis. And yeah, I feel like we see a lot of patients with cirrhosis, which is kind of like the end stage of, you know, they've been drinking for too long and now they're kind of at this unfortunate irreversible place. But I feel like this is a really good example of someone who's not there yet. And so we have like a really good opportunity to intervene. And sometimes they might not be like forthcoming with, you know, all this information. And so being able to like look at the labs and kind of work backwards. And like you said too, I think that was a really good point about like monitoring for withdrawal and a lot of the other things that if they're not telling you about it, it should always be something that's kind of in the back of your mind. So yeah, I thought this was an awesome case. Dr. Abrams was super excited about it. So I still say this is, the real issues is her Krebs cycle was broken. I don't know, are you, are you guys gonna tell us about that? Yeah, we have some teaching points. So, oh. so this is, look at this. I'm gonna tell you, <laughs> and this is because I'm not nearly as smart as you guys, okay? Well, no, that's I'm, not I'm just, I'm just gonna tell you that right now. And so literally I saw this patient I told you, she came in. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if you were there, Sarah. I was with Monique at the time, and when I saw her, which is maybe about ten hours or twelve hours after she came to the ER, she looked great, and so I was sure she wasn't septic, and 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 then the question really was: is okay? What's the differential diagnosis of lactic acidosis? So when we talk about that's why I talk about signal here. To me. There was the, the, the strong signal pieces were the lactic acidosis and the macrocytosis, mm -hmm. and, and because they connected to me, those were the two pieces that connected the most. Because the reality is, is there's really only one or two things that can cause macrocytosis, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so that was easy. And once I knew her B12 level was normal, yeah. then I knew her folate level had to be abnormal, and then I knew she had one deficiency, and then the question was, why doesn't she just have two deficiencies? <laughs> and because, because you guys will tell us in a minute, that is a cause of lactic acidosis. Mm -hmm. It's when we miss, we don't, I don't know if we miss it, we don't think about it. Mm -hmm. I know I was talking to one of the critical care people who say, oh yeah, we always look for this. Yeah. <laughs> and then they do or not, I don't know. Like we've known about this forever. Yeah, that they say they've known about it forever, but but I've never I've never seen it talked about. So So that was, always sort of this, that was the signal to me. Mm -hmm. I, I will say this also, so literally I am feeling worse and worse as the day goes on. And before I go home that day, I'm like, okay, I called up, I said, I called up, and I very rarely order things myself as an attending. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because, because our senior was gone that day. And I, and I put the orders in myself to draw a thiamine level and and then I called up the intern. I said, can't do this until her, she gets this lab, but yeah. you're gonna give her a dose of IV thiamine afterwards. <laughs> and then we waited five days for the result to come back. <laughs> right. You wanna take wow. us through some teaching points next? Yeah, let's do it. So we'll talk about thiamine deficiency. So thiamine, we were asking earlier, it's, it's, a, it's a vitamin, B1. It's water soluble. We find it in a lot of foods that we eat, yeast, legumes, pork, brown rice whole grains, whole bunch of things. And so 
This is a deficiency that we see mostly in populations without whole grains or individuals who consume a lot of alcohol, which is the case in our patient. And so thymine is required for pyruvate to enter the TCA cycle. And so without it, we just rely on anaerobic respiration, build up lactic acid, which is what happened in this case. And so we talked about some of the syndromes, so beriberi and Wernicke-Karsakoff. So beriberi can be classified as either dry or wet. When we think of it as dry, we think of the peripheral neuropathy. And wet is usually cardiac involvement with cardiomyopathy and high output, high output heart failure because the tissues are so demanding. And then with Wernicke-Karsakoff, so this is the devastating neurologic complication of thiamine deficiency. So Wernicke's would be acute encephalopathy and Karsakoff is the chronic condition that is a consequence of untreated Wernicke's. And this is what we classically think of short-term memory, confabulation with otherwise intact cognition, which is a little bit of a bizarre affect to have. So that's a little bit about thiamine. Megan can tell us a little bit about this iron overload that <laughs> um, we see. So that was something I was actually really interested in because I saw the labs. I was like, oh, she has hemochromatosis. This is mm -hmm. so cool. But she did not. And I feel like the only thing I've ever learned as a reason for iron overload is hemochromatosis. So I actually did a little searching and turns out patients who drink a lot of alcohol can actually commonly present with iron overload like she did. And so it's not completely understood why. I think it has something to do with like hepcidin regulation, which is then driven by alcohol. But it is kind of important because First off, they have hemochromatosis and they're drinking, they can just like destroy their liver way faster. But you just kind of get with increased hepatic iron content, you basically can get like more of these like free radicals and pro-inflammatory cytokines. So it can kind of cause the liver damage to happen sooner. So I thought that was an interesting point. And also with like the central hypothyroidism, I know GI was actually like worried that this was a hemochromatosis because you can get like infiltration in the pituitary. So we have no explanation for the central hypothyroidism. We were thinking probably just like due to malnutrition, which we have seen like some case reports and stuff of that. And I think just pathophysiologically, that makes sense. But yeah, that was kind of something new that I learned with this case, which I thought was cool. So I got two other things. So first of all, just as add-ons to this, because was so interesting to me, so I'd say that. But uh, I've, I've added, I added lots of vitamin. I added every vitamin level I could get <laughs> here back. And Mosin, you know, it's been two weeks now, and but her vitamin A level came yeah, back. Yeah, that was today. low. Yeah, it just okay. came back low, and I'm waiting for her vitamin C level. Vitamin E was normal. Vitamin E was yeah, normal. C is pending. Yeah, yeah, it was low normal, and her vitamin yeah vitamin C level is pending. And I'm just assuming that the that the that the low that the elevated INR could have been vitamin K deficiency, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So you could say it's liver disease, but she really doesn't have, her liver function is all totally normalized after. Yeah. Like you say, I think all of a sudden she could do, I, I just thought she was metabolically broken. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I got one little piece of, of stuff here because I do go back and to me it's, you know, and I'm way farther out of medical school than you guys are. And I still have nightmares about the Krebs cycle. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, and, and to me, this is the Krebs cycle coming to life in medicine. Where, what other places does it really come to life? So here we go. So, so here we go. What would be the perfect revenge for a scientist whose paper is turned away from nature? So <laughs> answering this is, how about a Nobel Prize? And such was the case for Hans Krebs, the biochemist who received the Nobel Prize in 1953 for discovering the citric acid cycle, which is what we call this Krebs cycle. So Krebs was a, he was a German born, he was Jewish, he was trained in medicine and chemistry, and he left, he was, started out in, in Germany and he left as the Nazis came to power. He went to England actually, where he joined the faculty at the University of Sheffield in 1935, and that's where he achieved his groundbreaking discovery. 
1937, Krebs and one of his colleagues, and I think the person who, there's a couple of people who got the Nobel Prize. So they minced up some pitching breast, and they <laughs> suspended it in a solution, and they watched its metabolic rate decline over time. And then they added citric acid to it, and what they found is that they could keep the tissue alive for a lot longer, okay? So additional, they did more experiments, and they found this sort of cyclical nature. And so that's where the Krebs cycle comes and all of this ATP stuff. So anyhow, so Krebs then goes and he submits his findings to Nature, only to quickly receive a note from the editor saying, saying that the journal had a backlog of stuff and that they wouldn't publish his paper. So, so later in his memoirs, he writes, this is the first time in my career after having published more than 50 papers that I experienced a rejection. So he, he resubmitted his findings to some, actually some relatively obscure journal that published it right away. And so in 1988, seven years after Krebs dies, an anonymous ed editor published a letter in Nature calling the rejection the journal's most egregious era. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's wow. So I have not heard that before. So that's a cool story about Krebs. Wow. <laughs> this is a, I think this is a cool case about Krebs. I agree. Yeah. It makes me just want to grab a dry erase marker and start drawing it out. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not get too far. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that one. All right, any reflections on the case? You guys are wonderful. Yeah, thank you. You know, it, it's so interesting. I think, you know, even as us discussed, it's kind of walking through the way the case kind of evolves. <clears throat> and like, you know, you start at point A when you try to keep things broad and that's we're going and we're getting these gallbladder results. And we're thinking, you know, <laughs> what, what does the sludge mean? Like, what, yeah. what are we doing? But it's just so great to see everything kind of come together with this one unifying picture. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Not so much related to the case, but this is. Daniel's and my first time being on the other side of the mic, and it's been awesome. So, so glad we get to work together on this case, and just really glad to, to be here and go through this case with you all. Yeah, thank you so much. Super fun. Thank you, guys. Yeah. You guys were fabulous. You did an amazing thank job. Thank you all right, and thanks to all of our listeners. We'll see you guys next time. See ya. And stay tuned for when we flip the script again and have Megan and Nick in the hot seat with Lauren and Dan presenting a case at North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. Good. Can't wait. Bring it on. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. We'll see you next time.